Morning, New Hope. Sound like you like that song. I'm going to ask you to go to uh, Matthew chapter 3, if you would, if you have a Bible with you, maybe have it electronically or hard copy. If you don't own a Bible, we have free copies of Bibles in the back. You can grab one in the atrium on your way out this morning if you'd like to own one. Hopefully you picked up the sermon notes on the way in, or maybe you're at home and you're downloading them right now. Um, Feel free, you can download them on the app if you want to, it'll help you a lot. We're going to be uh, taking a little bit of a journey this morning, and we're starting a new series, and this series is called Hard Questions. About five years ago, uh, one of the more popular things, I think, if if I use that term, we did was um, we did a a short series called You Asked For It, in which the church sent in questions. And we spent weeks going through various questions that had been sent in. Well, today begins a a new question series. And Hard Questions is about an 18-week journey. It's going to take us into September. And during the course of it, we're going to be addressing hard things that the Bible has to say about questions we have living in 2021. If you want to send in questions in the course of the next weeks or months, feel free to do that. I have a list of them already that we're going to be working through. And today happens to be kind of a soft launch to that. We're going to be looking at why do we do baptism? And the reason for that is because next weekend is Baptism Sunday. Currently, there's 14 people signed up to be baptized next weekend. Isn't that great? Yeah. Pretty excited. Actually, a few more because some people came to me after the first service and said they wanted to be added to the list too. So um, be back for that. That's always a great day here. So we're going to look at what is the deal with baptism? Why do we do that? Why does Jesus give us that mandate? And I hope it's crystal clear to you this morning as we work through it. So we're going to kind of do a soft start. We're working our way through 18 weeks of questions. And then in September, we're going to start a longer series called Eternity to Eternity. A short acronym is E2E that we're going to be using for that in part of the graphics. And eternity to eternity is going to be probably a couple years, all right? Just so you know in advance. Um, Here's what we're going to do. We're starting in the book of Genesis, and we're going to the time before history and moving all the way through to the book of Revelation. And along the way, we're going to look at the major stories that are in the Bible. And uh, when we're done, Jesus needs to return because we won't have anything left, all right? (laughs) Okay, (laughs) that's the plan. All right, just telling you. Um, We're not afraid of longer studies here at New Hope, and uh, I I think you're going to find that really fascinating as well. Well, this morning in Matthew 3, I'm going to ask you to kind of play archaeologist with me. We're going to dig into the historical roots of what's going on behind what is one of the greatest and most significant commands that Jesus gave us. To do that, we have to understand the time frame. Augustus Caesar has died, and a new Caesar is on the throne. His name is Tiberius. When Dr. Luke begins writing about this moment that Matthew 3 also records, he gives us a very specific time frame. It helps us with our archaeological work. Look with me on the screen at this, Luke 3, verse 1. It says, very specifically, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee. You put all those pieces together, and it appears to have occurred in 29 AD that John the Baptist arrives on the scene, and he arrives apparently six months before Jesus does. So Matthew starts out this way in chapter 3 and verse 1. Now in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, "'Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, "'The voice of one crying in the wilderness.'" 
Make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. If you don't know this, you want to write a little note in your own Bible. He's quoting Isaiah chapter 40 when he makes that statement. It's very significant that we identify the prophets because there's been 400 years of silence up to this point in time. Malachi is the last one to write. He's the very last author in the end of the Old Testament. And then there's 400 years of nothing. And now begin, God begins to speak. And he's speaking through a new prophet. And the new prophet's name is John the Baptist. And Jesus was heard to say to people, there has arisen no one greater born among women than John the Baptist. That's a pretty significant acclamation to make for the Son of God to call John the greatest who have ever been born. Specifically, Matthew tells us he's well known to the people because he's out preaching. One of the words that's not going to go on the screen, that's a Greek word this morning, is in your notes, it's on the very back side, it's the word caruso. And caruso is one who is a herald. It's an actual office in the realm of the ancient world. Where kings had their thrones, they always had a caruso. And a caruso was a heralder, one who would go out and announce the proclamations of the king and would make it known to the people. That title was transferred over to the church. John the Baptist is a caruso. He's a, a heralder. And his official duty is to proclaim loudly and extensively the things the king wanted people to know. So we find as we read this story that John very much knew and understood his responsibility. And he never sought to honor himself. So when the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court, shows up and begins asking John, who are you and what are you doing here? He was very, very clear, as you see on the screen in John 1.20, I am not the Christ. Many people thought that he was the Messiah, and he's making it very clear and humbly saying, that's not who I am. And they keep pressing the issue. And so he responds by saying, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make clear the path of the Lord. Make his way straight. And one of the questions we ask ourselves along the way is, how did John actually do that? How did John prepare the way? Let me expand for you a little bit on clearing the highway. Every king, when he arrived in the realms of his kingdom and he would go visit various cities, the people who lived in those cities would prepare a path for the king who was arriving on his chariot. So they would send workers out to the sides of the highways to clear the highway. When Lori and I were younger, in our 20s, we served at a place called Youth Haven Ranch, a fantastic ministry, by the way, works with underprivileged children. And we were there for 15 years. And during that span of time, the state of Michigan decided that individuals and corporations could adopt a highway section. And so we were allowed to get our name out on the side of US 127 we were at down uh, north of Jackson. And they would say that Youth Haven had adopted this section of the highway. But um, in my youthful zeal, I wanted to adopt more than the others. Because I found out that you could adopt 1.2 miles if you wanted to, or you could adopt two miles, or you could adopt four miles. And I was very young and enthusiastic, so I said to everybody, well, how about if we adopt four miles of highway? And many people with much greater wisdom said to me, Mark, just <laughs> dial it down a little bit. You don't know what it is to go out and clear and prepare and clean the side of a highway. Well, we ended up adopting about a two-mile stretch. And I'll tell you what, it is a lot of work to go out and pick up all the litter that people drop out of their cars and to do that three times a year and keep your section of the highway clear. That's kind of what's being referred to here. But in their world, 
what they would actually do is go out and fill in the potholes. They would make the low places high and the high places low and remove all the stones from the road so that when their king arrived in their region, there'd be no bouncing in his chariot. His way would be smooth. It would be completely prepared for him. Well, we find John doing this specifically, we're told by Malachi, the last author of the Old Testament in chapter 3, verse 1, this is John's job description. Watch on the screen. Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts." Malachi's prophecy was written, I told you, 400 years before Jesus. Nothing but silence. We'd have to go all the way back to 1621 to appreciate this, to think of someone living in 1621, communicating, and then 400 years of nothing. And then God sends this prophet on the scene. And he begins communicating, and he bursts on the scene, and people again begin hearing the prophetic word of God. And the message can be summarized in just one word. Repent. Repent is the driving force behind this. So you will see this Greek word on the screen because I want you to get this down, metanoeo. This is a Greek word describing a human function in the mind. It means changing your mind and speaks very specifically to that, to think differently, but there's something more going on here. That's the way the Greeks understood it. But the way God's people understood it was it's way more than regret. It's more than just changing your mind. It means to completely change the course of direction in your life, in your mind and in your will. And if you've been at New Hope for any length of time, you've seen me illustrate it this way, as though someone walking in one direction decides completely to turn 180 degrees and go the opposite direction. That's what the word repent means. I was going this way with my life, but now I'm going this way with my life. I'm going a completely different direction. And it's always a change from the wrong direction to the right direction. So repentance, when John's saying it and when we use it biblically today, we're talking about a change of conduct. So John's got this message. He's living in the first century and he says, prepare for the coming of the king. In other words, you better get ready for a completely different way of living. Now, that's pretty startling news. If you've been anticipating the Messiah and you're of the conclusion that you're already good enough, that you're born genealogically, that you've descended from Abraham, you're the chosen people, you've already earned your place just because of mom and dad, who you're born into, you're chosen by God. How shocking would that be to hear it? So sum this up, this first part. Nothing but crickets for 400 years. Then God's word burst on the scene. And when it does, it's not what they expect. It's a message of rebuke. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, but you're not ready for it. You better get your act together. Watch the flow of this. Jump over verse 4 with me and go down to verse 5. Then Jerusalem was going out to him. And all Judea and all the district around the Jordan, and they were being baptized, toward baptizo, by him in the Jordan River, and they confessed their sins. And hear this, church. The impact was enormous. 
immediate, very, very intense. People are flooding towards John from all over the nation. The scriptures say from both sides of the Jordan River. Mark chapter 1, it says this, and the country of Judea, all the country of Judea was going out to him and all the people of Jerusalem. If you were here before Easter, you might have heard me refer to the fact that Jerusalem's population in the first century, about 160,000 people. At Passover, it swelled to two and a half million. But normal times during the year, if just 160,000 people from Jerusalem went out to see John, that would be gigantic. But add to that the rest of the nation, the entire population of Israel is flooding towards John. That they submit to being baptized is absolutely huge because this is not a function that's typically applied to Jews. For someone to submit to this type of a ritual demonstration, what they're saying in their world is, I'm on the outside, I wanna be on the inside. I've been separated from God's people, I wanna be part of God's people. I wanna be among the chosen people. So here's what's remarkable about this. We have descendants of Abraham, heirs of the covenant, getting baptized like Gentiles because only Gentiles up to that point would be baptized to belong to God's people. Dr. MacArthur had a really interesting insight on this. I wanted you to see his quote. You see it up on the screen. That act, and he's talking about baptism, that act symbolized before the world that they realized that their racial descent or even their calling as God's covenant people could not save them. They had to repent, forsake sin, and trust in the Lord for salvation. So this is magnificent what's going on. We're talking about genuine, legitimate life change, real genuine repentance. People who've said, I've been doing this. I'm going to go in this direction. I want to be ready for the king. And there was fruit. There was fruit as a result of that. Now, back to the story. The Jordan River in the first century is very fast flowing. Today, it's a smaller stream. Israel has tapped into its diminished in size. But at that period of time, it was a really large river and very fast moving. And John apparently places himself at one of the bends in the river where the water slows down. And we see this in verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father, for I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. John stands in the tradition of the ancient prophets. See, he's willing to call a spade a spade. He's willing to speak right into the situation and say, this is what it is. And he confronts head on those who think they have no sin. Now, Josephus is a historian who lives in the first century. Rome hired him to record the history of the Jews. You can buy his works today. The, the writings are the works of Josephus. I have a copy in my library. And he's not a necessarily a believer in Jesus or a believer in John, but he's a historian that lives at this period of time. And he writes a record of the things going on in first century Israel. Josephus notices as he's watching John that John demands righteous conduct as a necessary preliminary to being baptized. In other words, the precondition of being baptized 
is that there would be an open renunciation of sin in somebody's life. But now you have these two groups showing up on the scene, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And we're told by Matthew, they're coming together for baptism. And the remarkable thing about this in that story is these two groups hate each other. They're openly hostile toward each other. We can't really get our mind around it because we tend to think of government groups that are kind of opposed to each other. Our mind kind of defaults to Democrats, Republicans. And so we go to the House and we go to the Senate and we begin thinking of individuals who don't get along and how they debate and how they argue. I have friends who lived in Washington over the years, and they've told me that, you know, a lot of what you see on television between the Democrats and the Republicans arguing, a lot of that is done for show. It's done for the sake of the television to gain a position with the populace. But you'll find those same groups of people going out to dinner together at night after the cameras are turned off. I don't know if that's still the case in Washington right now. Not sure that it is. But these two groups, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they would never be found going out to dinner together. They're not going to hang out together. They are really openly hostile towards each other. And here's the reasons for that. The Pharisees, they have their own community within a community. They're individuals who are separated legalists. And I mean that underline, underline, underline the word legalist. They believe strongly in God's sovereignty and they also consider themselves the super spiritual ones of the nation. But it was all external. And so they're really, really meticulous about keeping everything to the letter of the law and observing religious rituals, crossing every T, dotting every I, doing everything of the law, the things that they created known as the traditions of the elders. And Jesus rebuked them for that. He said, you're teaching to people the doctrines of men, not the doctrines of God. You, you treat them as precepts of God, and that's not what they are. Now, the word Pharisee came to mean the separated ones. If you were at New Hope five years ago, you would have heard me give this illustration on Pharisees. That they were known as the bruised and the bleeding, and here's the reason why. When they're out in public, especially if they're on sidewalks where women would be walking by so that they wouldn't have any lusting going on in their eyes. The men would not be tempted to look at the women lusting after them. They'd put blindfolds around their eyes and continue walking down the sidewalk. Thus the title bruised and bleeding because they're walking with their nose right into the wall. They can't see what's coming at them. They're the separated ones. They separated themselves from the tax collectors. They separated themselves from the common man, from the community. And they looked down on common people with great disdain that no one was as spiritual as them. So after leaving the marketplace, they would go out of their way to make sure they, they had washed and purified themselves. If you had a garage sale today and they came to your house to buy a utensil from you, they'd have to take that utensil back to the synagogue and purge it down into water to purify it because they couldn't dare come in contact with something that a Gentile had used. Now, the Sadducees, they're on the opposite side of the spectrum. They've completely compromised themselves politically and culturally and religiously. They have no interest in Greek culture, but they love the Romans. And they want to spend time with the Romans. They really like the Roman way of life. They, they claim to follow the law of Moses, but they scorn the Pharisees and all the traditions. In the first century, they're so closely tied with the ruling class. They're very, very wealthy individuals, so closely tied with them that when you said the word chief priest, 
people immediately thought of Sadducees. Or if you said Sadducees, they thought of the ruling class of the chief priests. Just like when we say Pharisees, we think of scribes because they're the, the legalists. In the New Testament, it appears that the only common ground that they have is their hatred for Jesus. So verse 7 is stunning when it says the Pharisees and the Sadducees are coming for baptism. And it's really hard to process why. Why would those two groups who consider themselves the elite of the elite come to John for a baptism of repentance? And the Greek preposition that's being used there in the word for, it means there's an intent behind it. It's not just to be baptized. There's something going on. There's a, there's a purpose in it. Here's part of your archaeological dig. It, it seems that they suspect that John might be a genuine prophet. He might just be legitimately from God. And if he is, if that's true of him, they want his stamp of approval. They'd give him a gold star among the people, and they would have greater standing among the populace over whom they rule, and it would advance their position. But what's very, very clear in the story is they're not seeking God's direction in their life, and it's not because of repentance. So John calls them out. He knew this about them, and he knows they're still hypocrites. Look with me on the screen. Verse 7, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? That's the same description that Jesus used of them. The vipers is echnida, and it's a Greek word describing a desert snake. And this was an extremely poisonous desert snake. The bite many times resulted in death. The remarkable thing about this type of viper is they were often picked up by mistake. Because when they were laying still, they looked like a twig. They looked like a little piece of wood. So people out gathering firewood would often pick up these vipers. You see Paul doing it in the book of Acts. He reaches down to gather firewood. They're on the island of Malta, and he gets bitten by the snake. Now, a common sight in the Mediterranean region is that farmers would burn the stalks in their field after the harvest. And when they begin lighting the stalks on fire to burn their field, the vipers would flee and scurry to get away and run away from the flame so it wouldn't consume them. Here's the implication of what John's saying to them. The Pharisees and the Sadducees are expecting the baptism to be something like a spiritual fire insurance. Like, we do that, and it's going to make us even better. But we know this, church. We know true relationship with God means that God does protect us from His wrath. But posers have a false sense of security. If they're thinking this is just one more ritual, one more thing to do to make God like me, maybe he'll let me in. That's a person who's just playing church, and John is refusing to be part of their sham, and that's why he's calling them out. So like the viper, they could appear to be harmless, but their fake godliness is really deadly. And they're willing to carry their hypocrisy out, even to the extent of being baptized, when there's no genuine, real, true relationship. That's how far their hypocrisy would go. So John uses a really interesting word. He uses this word genema when he uses the word brood. Genema actually means offspring. So when he says, you brood of snakes, he's actually calling them the descendants of snakes. 
Jesus uses that same imagery when he said, you're the perpetuators of spiritual darkness. You're the children of Satan. Satan is your father. And came right out and called them that. And it's to that group of people that's standing on the beach that day. John turns his attention to them. And he says this that you see on the screen, verse 9. From these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Don't you dare think that your lineage is your ticket. Don't you think just because your mom and dad are Christian, it gets you in. Don't you think because your uncle might have been a missionary or your great-grandfather might have been a pastor or your family's been really good church people, don't think that your lineage, your descent is your ticket into heaven. Meaning this, and I see this in what John's communicating here, at judgment day, your lineage won't matter. Your pedigree won't matter one bit. It's who you truly belong to that God cares about. Say amen if you agree with that. Who you truly belong to. And John can see it's a sham. And so that's why he's calling them out. And he says to them in verse 8, you need to be bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, if you truly belong to God, your lifestyle, your choices of your life, it's going to be consistent with what your spoken convictions are. You can't be saying one thing and living a completely different way. And that's why John's calling him out this way. So he's got both rebuke and he's got invitation going on here. Here's the way I'm reading this. John's saying to them, you're showing no signs of repentance. There's no change in your lifestyle, but you have an opportunity to truly repent here. And if you do, if you show me that you're truly repentant, I'll be glad to baptize you. The thought of repentance is actually older than John. It's older than the time of Jesus here on earth. It goes back to the Old Testament. Maybe new news to you, but this is a rich heritage that was handed down from the tradition of the ancients that God is a merciful God. It's what he said to Moses on Mount Sinai. I'm long-suffering Moses, and I am merciful to thousands of generations. So when the Hebrews put together the Mishnah, which is a collection of Jewish writings, they said things like this that you see on the screen. Repentance is like the sea. A person can bathe in it at any hour. The gates of repentance never close. Isn't that a beautiful thought, church? That, that you can go to God in repentance at any time, just like walking to Lake Michigan and stepping out into the water on the beach, any time. Nothing's stopping you from doing that. Repentance is like the sea. But then John goes on to clarify what he meant by that statement in verse 11. Verse 11, as for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. John's the most sought-after preacher in the entire nation, and yet he protests I am not fit to carry the sandals of the one who is coming. If, if you're new to church or new to the Bible, 
when someone says something like that, he's using a very clear analogy from their world. And in their world, a first century slave who was the lowest of the lowest, that's the one who untied the master's sandals at the end of the day. Just think about it. There's, there's no odor eaters in the first century, right? Okay, so they've been out walking really dirty roads. They're making their way around the countryside doing what they do. Their feet come back at the end of the day, dark and black. And then he's got a bunch of guests with him. And they're coming in for dinner. And the lowest of the lowest slave has to not only take their sandals off, endure the smell, but then washes the feet of each of those individuals. John says, I'm not even like that. I can't even carry the sandals of this one who is coming. The coming one, the he who is coming, John uses that title, he who is coming, demands repentance. And this one also brings judgment simultaneously. Now, hear what he's saying. It's 29 A.D., The kingdom is just dawning. Jesus is just appearing on the scene to do his three years of work. And just at the moment he's coming, also John begins speaking of the judgment hand in hand because the two are inseparable. To preach, to herald, to caruso the kingdom is to proclaim repentance, but it's also to proclaim judgment. Otherwise, why would you need to repent if there wasn't judgment connected with it? But John here, indirectly, he's saying he's coming in order that no one needs to face judgment. Let me explain the imagery that he just used. In the first century, a farmer who was growing wheat would collect the the bundles of wheat. They would cut it off, you know, short at the stalk, and they would build a stone wall, and inside that stone wall, create a depression in the ground, either hard-packed stone or hard-packed dirt. And down into that depression in the ground is where they would throw the wheat they had just cut. After they've done that, they get large timbers together and they get a couple oxen to drag the timber back and forth across the bundles of wheat, hoping to break away the kernel that's at the end of the stalk and crushing the stalk that's there. The the owner of the crops would then get out his winnowing fork, a pitchfork, and throw it up into the air, and the wind would blow the chaff to one side, and the heavier grain of wheat would drop into this little basin they've carved in the ground. They'd gather up the kernels of wheat, put it into a bag, store it safely into the barn, but the chaff that's blown off to the side, he gathers that up, and he throws it into the fire, and he burns it, and that's the imagery that John's giving here. This one has come to collect the wheat. He wants to preserve the world He wants to put it in his barn and save it, but there will be those who will reject him and they become the chaff who get burnt up. This is part of the imagery that he's giving. So in a similar way, Christ will separate out those who belong to him. He's going to gather his wheat into the barn forever. It's going to be safe. And then he throws these two phrases out in verse 11, but I baptize you with water for repentance. Here's a deeper dive on that imagery. The Jews used water immersion for a purification system to purify an individual. If a Gentile wanted to become a follower, they would come to a Jew and say, how do I do this? It's the mark of an outsider who wants to become an insider. So Dr. Luke, who wrote the book of Luke and the book of Acts in the Bible, he was a Gentile. What if he wanted to become a Jew? He'd have to go through this immersion process 
And John's talking about this baptizing with water for repentance. And it's, it's the outward mark of an inward repentance saying, I'm outside, but I want to be inside. I want to be part of this. But then John goes to verse 11. He says, a second baptism is true also. He will baptize you. He, meaning Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, that's a match for exactly what Jesus told us would happen. It deserves its own treatment. We won't get into it today, but just look at what Jesus said, John 14, 16. I will send you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not behold him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. And we know that happened at Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit came with fire. We understand what they're describing there, but we can't get into that today. We'll address that in the hard questions. Verse 13 changes everything then. All of this has been set up to this point, and now we get the meat in the last two verses. Verse 13, then Jesus arrived. Now, we don't know if it's the exact same day, the exact same hour. We don't know if it's within 30 seconds of the Pharisees and Sadducees. We just don't know. But he says, then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Here's a hard question below the hard question. Why would Jesus need to be baptized? This is a baptism of repentance for sin. What's going on here? He has nothing to repent of. He became sin that we would know no sin. He who knew no sin became sin for us on the cross, but he doesn't have sin here. But to understand this, you need just a little deeper dive and a brief background on the mikvah and what this immersion process is. Like we have a baptism tank that's underneath the stage, and later this week, they'll pull that lid off and they'll warm up the water, and there's a pool under the stage, and it will be used for baptism next weekend. In the synagogues of the ancient world, and some still today, had an indoor pool inside their building, and it was called a mikvah. And that mikvah was used for immersion. It was used for the purification process and for restoration. And if you wanted qualification of full restoration into the religious community, you had to go into the mikvah. I'll give you an example of this. If you've got a loved one at home and, and they passed away, and in your grieving and in your mourning, in the midst of that, you throw yourself on their body as they die, you've just come in contact with a corpse. And according to the law, you've been defiled at that point. That's just one example of an individual who would have to go to the priest and say, I need to be immersed before I can come into the temple and celebrate with the people. I've got to go through the mikvah process. Now, what John's referring to here is the water cleansing that was very familiar to their world. I'll give you an example from um, Luke chapter 11. Jesus has been invited to dinner, and he's going over to the house of a Pharisee. And the Pharisees got this spread ready for him, and Jesus has been teaching. Luke chapter 11, verse 37 records this. Now, when he had spoken, meaning Jesus has been out teaching, when he had spoken, a Pharisee asked him to have lunch with him, and he went in and reclined at the table. When the Pharisee saw it, he was surprised that he had not first ceremonially washed before the meal. 
See, immersion was so important that this Pharisee, and the, the word surprise doesn't really capture it in the English language, he's astonished. He's shocked that Jesus walks into his house and just plops himself down in the lazy boy without washing first. Well, what? Why aren't you participating? He's the most well-known, greatest prophet they've ever met. And Jesus isn't participating in the purification where they allow the water to run down their fingers and elbows. And we're not talking about just for sanitization reasons. We're talking about purification to participate. See, immersion to them was so important that before the high priest could conduct a service, he had to go into the mikvah. On the Day of Atonement, before people could come to the temple complex, they had to go into the mikvah. Before a scribe, and I think this is the coolest thing, before a scribe could ever write the word of the name of God, they had to go into the mikvah. I think they held the name of God in such high revere that they wouldn't even write it without going into the tank. So building a mikvah is so important in the ancient world that many times it took precedence over the synagogue itself. So why immersion though? What is it about that? To the ancient Jew, and I was just reading about a synagogue in California last week doing the exact same thing, to the Jewish world, and we'll say mostly the ancient Jews, the, the spiritual purification that took place when a person was baptized in the water meant this. It meant the trimming of all the fingernails. It, it meant removing all paint from fingernails. It meant removing all the jewelry. And in the modern world, I was reading this this last week, that at the synagogue in California, it means if you've got dreadlocks, you've got to get your dreadlocks cut off. If you've got braids in your hair, you've got to find somebody to take all the braids out of your hair. If you're wearing contacts, you've got to take the contacts off. And you go into the tank completely naked, no clothing to separate you from God. Now, we won't ask you to do that here at New Hope, okay? All right? So in their world, a girl tank and a boy tank. And the men would oversee the men's mikvah, and the women would oversee the women's mikvah. And this spiritual cleansing, this purification was so huge because they were making a spiritual, fresh profession of faith before the witnesses known as the fathers of baptism. Three witnesses that had to be present at every single one. So an individual would stand straight up, put their hands out in front of them, squat down into the water. Their hair goes down below the water and they come back up out of the water. And the three witnesses that were there were heard to say to the individual coming up out of the water, congratulations, my son or my daughter. You have been born again. That's where the phrase comes from. Because they looked upon this water as being the womb of the world from which a person would come forth if they wanted new life and a new beginning. So you have been born anew. How interesting when we come to Jesus' baptism in the last verse, we're just about to hit it. We see the three witnesses, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are present at Jesus' baptism. During the time John's preaching, during the time he's baptizing, then Jesus came to the beach. Now, earlier, John had a real problem with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, that they're not worthy of his baptism. And now Jesus appears on the scene, and Jesus is too worthy of John's baptism. The idea of Jesus being baptized is unthinkable. 
And John knows his identity. So when Jesus comes to the beach, John looks over and says, the Lamb of God is here. Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So it's not as though John didn't know who he's talking to. And the first reaction he has to Jesus is, oh, I need to be baptized by you. This is the guy who just said, I can't even take the sandals off his feet. And now he's saying, I can't baptize you. And it's not hard for you and I in 2021 to understand John's reaction because his baptism was for confession and for repentance, but Jesus has nothing to confess. Here's Jesus' response to John, verse 15. But Jesus answering said to him, permitted at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness, and then he permitted him. So John is convinced when Jesus says to him, John, it's the Father's will. You've got to go through with this. Permit it at this time means it is indeed appropriate for this special moment in time. Let me give you three reasons to close out our service this morning why Jesus had to be baptized. You'll see him on the screen. It was a model of obedience. He's modeling exactly what he expects of us. It was to give an example to those who would come after him. That'll make more sense to you as I give you the next two. It represents his identification, his willing identification. What do I mean by that? The Son of God is willingly identifying with the sinful people that he's coming to save. Hundreds of years earlier, Isaiah wrote this about the Messiah. Isaiah 53, it says this, he would be numbered, he was numbered with the transgressors. What's a transgressor? Anyone who has sinned. Jesus has no sin, but he's with all the people who do sin. He's numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. So the first public act in God's redemptive plan is found right here. He who has no sin is taking his place among those who have nothing but sin. And this one who is without sin is being submitting to a baptism for sinners. And in this action alone, the Savior of the world is taking his place among the sinners of the world, and he's publicly saying, I'm going to become sin for you. Look with me at 1 Corinthians. You saw it last week at Easter time. He made him who knew no sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is how he will fulfill all righteousness, to be one of us, to do the things that we do. And he's not only modeling obedience, he's not only giving us a symbol of his identification. Here's the third and last one. It's a symbol of his death and resurrection, and that is not hard to see whatsoever. You watch next week, people go into the tank. We're going to see that phrase come to life, buried with Christ in baptism, raised again to newness of life because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what baptism is. It's, it's this imagery. It's easy to see the death and the resurrection in that, going down, coming up. So we close with verse 16. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, 
in whom I am well pleased. For the church, for New Hope in 2021, baptism represents a believer's identification with Christ's resurrection and Christ's death. That's what baptism is. So why immersion? With sprinkling or pouring water over someone does not fit the image of dying and being raised. I was sprinkled myself when I was 13, 12 years of age. I didn't become a believer in Jesus until I was 14. And I realized I had done that for show because somebody told me I was supposed to do it. And it didn't mean anything because I didn't associate it with anything. And at age 21, 22, 23, I think it was, I said to Lori, I really believe I need to be baptized and I need to be baptized by immersion because for me, it was a conviction thing. Like, God's called me to do this. So I submitted to that. I find a lot of people resist baptism simply because they think it's going to be an embarrassing thing. Individuals who came to me after the first service said, I'm going to do this as an adult, even though I, I'm kind of embarrassed by it. But I would say in response to them, what one of the elders said to me after the first service, I have never met anyone who was baptized and then afterwards says, man, I really wish I wouldn't have done that. But rather said, that's a high point in my life because I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I identify with it. So we end right here, church, with Colossians 2.8, this huge proclamation about baptism. See it on the screen. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in Him you have been made complete, and He is head over all, rule and authority. And in Him you are also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, and the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Here it is having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. I want to see if you agree with me. Say amen if you do. Baptism is not salvation. Baptism won't save you. Otherwise, what do you do with the thief on the cross? This day you will be with me in paradise. Did they pull the thief off the cross, baptize him, and put him back on the cross? No. It was the work of Jesus, the finished work of Jesus, that made that reality true. Baptism is a declaration that I belong, and I'm not ashamed. It's an indication of obedience to God's call on your life. So if you're wondering this morning, should you be baptized? Absolutely. Will we wear out Gary Post arm next week? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Let's pray for him. And pray together that we remember this bold statement that God's called us to as we've answered this first question. Let's pray together, church. God, I thank you for the, the church triumphant. I thank you for the virtual church, people who are in their homes and cars right now, and those of us who are gathered here together in this auditorium, that we're able to look at your word, understand your word, and because of the power of your Holy Spirit, you make it very clear for us. So thank you, Father, for giving us clarification on what you've called us to do and, and why. I pray, God, as we take on this week, that we would find ourselves not just obedient in these things, but obedient in every area that you've called us to. 
and that truly we would walk as people who have repented. That we might have been going one way and we're working our best, Father, through the power of the Holy Spirit to go the opposite direction. Be with us, strengthen us through the power of the Spirit. That we would avoid those things that you don't want us to participate in. God, I pray for our church that way. And I pray for it in Jesus' matchless name. And all God's people said, amen. If you want to be included in baptism this coming weekend, contact the office. You can email directly. Jeff is over there, and I think Dave Schubert's over there. You can talk to them after the service. Or if you want somebody to pray with you. In the meantime, have a great week.